Hi, this is Peter Tork, and you're listening to Zilch. It's a monkey's podcast. What number is this, Chip? Episode 68, featuring Ann Moses from Tiger Beat. Hey, that's you. That is me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, don't, mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short. I'm Zilch. Zilch. You're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast. And welcome to Zilch, your podcast full of monkeys. Today I'm joined by co-host Sarah Clark, and we have a very special guest here today, Ann Moses from Tiger Beat Magazine. Hello, Ann. Hi, Ken and Sarah. How are Hi, you? Hi, it's great to talk to you. Same here. Fantastic. Ann, as you know, and everyone else does, it is the year of the monkeys it is the monkeys 50th anniversary please talk a bit about what it means to be celebrating the monkeys 50th anniversary sure so my life has been kind of crazy the last few weeks um taking care of my mom who is still very much um an active senior mm-hmm. and uh, lo and behold, I get on Facebook and I see that it's the 50th anniversary of the Monkees' debut on NBC, and it occurred to me that it it was uh, well 50 years less one day that I met them all for the first time. Wow! And um, so it was pretty significant, and I pulled up a picture from that day and posted it on my Facebook page. And um, I did think about it all day. It's like, whoa, 50 years. It seems like yesterday. (laughs) Absolutely. And you're going to be seeing the boys uh, very soon. Yes. Thursday night, they they appear about four miles from my home in Mesa, Arizona. Because of of Peter having to leave the tour for just a couple of nights, uh, Michael has has stepped in, and he's going to be performing with Mickey. Uh, right now, I'm scheduled to go to a sound check and have a chat and just uh, catch up after all this time, and I can't wait for Thursday. It's going to be great, <laughs> and we will let people know where they can find out what you write about this because you're going to be doing a bit of a, a write-up about it, correct? Uh, not only a write-up, but... A, but in this day and age, you know, it's no longer tape recorders and transcribing and then having my, my uh, interview come out two months later when the magazine is published. We're going to be doing uh, video interviews, and those should go up live probably over the weekend. So it's a new day, and it's, a, it's an exciting way to, uh, you know, bring back a little bit of, of uh, the old days and a little bit of the current time so it's it's going to be an exciting prospect and you know we're going to feature it on zilch so oh you betcha yeah i'm i'm, I'm actually deputizing you uh <laughs> as one of our monkey men of zilch to go out go forth and interview and have fun and monkey around and all that stuff mm-hmm. 
This looks like a job for... <laughs> Monkey Men! Hop, hop and away! Will do, and Ta-da. I've got my button to prove it. Yes, you've got a zilch button, and it looks so <laughs> good do. on you. I'm not sure I've ever seen a zilch button look so good, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, well, we'll see. Yeah. So, uh, and we also should address the Peter Tork situation. Everything's fine. Uh, Peter is in, in fine health and everything's okay. He just needed to take care of something in his personal life. And that's all we need to know about it because we love the guys and they're entitled to have their lives as well. So, Absolutely. So send prayers to all of us. I'll take them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and here's a clip that John Hughes from Rhino posted with Mickey and Mike at rehearsals yesterday for the upcoming shows. Well, hi there, everybody. Uh... It's Mickey Dolans here and the Nez, and we are here in Hollywood rehearsing for uh, some upcoming shows, but we just thought we'd shout out there uh, to all of you uh, and remind you that 50 years ago, <laughs> 50 years ago, at this very moment, at 7.30 East Coast time, the Monkees premiered on NBC. Seems yep. like it was only 50, 50 years, years ago. ago. <laughs> uh, we'll see you on the road there, folks. The Year of the Monkeys. The Monkeys are coming to your town, your Blu-ray player, your CD player, and your computer. And you need to be prepared. We've been wanting to do this for a long time. Our listeners had a ton of questions for you. We, we threw it out to our Facebook group, and we said, if you have questions for Ann, and boy, we were not prepared for what we got, were we, Sarah? I counted them up when I was putting together our question list. We had over 50 questions. 63 was my count. 63 was your count? Yeah. That's yes. exciting. I know, but we're not going to ask you 63 questions. A lot of them were kind of thematically similar, and we compress things back. There are a few little things we won't get to, but, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll be able to have you back again sometime. That would be fun. It's either awesome. that or a six-hour interview now. <laughs> so I think I'll miss my dinner date at that rate. Well, yeah. that's okay. That's all right. I'll make uh, goo-goo eyes over the Cabernet. <laughs> anyway, so... Sarah, would you like to read Anne's impressive story? Anne Moses is a California native and grew up two miles from Disneyland in Anaheim, California. She began writing about music in Southern California in 1965. She was a freelancer for Rhythm and News, a weekly newspaper sold in music stores. She began working for Tiger Beat Magazine in January 1966 as an associate editor and was promoted to features editor in April 67. On her 21st birthday, Anne was named as the official editor of Tiger Beat. She worked as the feature editor of Tiger Beat's Monkey Spectacular Monthly from 1967 to 1968. In 1966, she also became a freelance contributor to the New Musical Express, and from 1968 to 1971, was the Hollywood correspondent for the NME. She contributed her weekly column, America Calling, and many full-length interviews. She left Tiger Beat and Hollywood in 1972 to move to Normalville. She currently blogs about her Hollywood and music memories at annmoses.com. And thank you again so much for joining us today, Anne. It's my pleasure. Wonderful. 
Well, to get things started off, how did you first get interested and involved in music journalism? Well, I would say it probably started in junior high school. I loved English and I did well in my English classes while I struggled through my math and science classes. And they had an opening. I, re I read our daily newspaper, the Anaheim Bulletin, and they had an opening for a reporter from each junior high school. And every Friday they did a teen page, they called it. And it was basically the news of what was going on in my junior high. And so I was fully on board because they paid me a whopping 15 cents a column inch for those stories. Well then. <laughs> so you can believe I padded and padded and padded all the wonderful things that were happening at Orange View Junior High. So that was the start. Then in high school, I was sports editor of the high school yearbook in my junior year. My brother was the editor that year. And then the following year, I was named editor. And during that summer between my junior and senior year, I was lucky enough to go to the University of Southern California for a two-week editor's workshop. And it was given by a professor of journalism from Oklahoma State. And he was amazing, but we stayed in the dorms and I just immediately wanted my life to be in journalism and I wanted to go to USC, but that didn't turn out that way. And then when I went to junior college, I became the co-editor of the college newspaper. And so that's how it pretty much began. And then once I had a chance to interview the Dave Clark Five, that's when I started freelancing for Rhythm and News. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that when you were working for Rhythm and News, you, you met a lot of different kinds of bands, not, not just strictly the white Anglo-Saxon pop bands. Very much so. Because the newspaper was called Rhythm and News, mm -hmm. they, were, they were very much focused on blues music, and the new wave of, of black singers, um, now called African American. So often they would they would assign me stories to cover groups like the Miracles, James Brown, mm. some oh, of the people wow. like that. Oh yeah, and and I literally would drive myself up to Los Angeles. They would typically play at the clubs in South Los Angeles. You know, not as far mm -hmm. south as Compton, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but but they were they were basically black neighborhoods, and and they were they were clubs for for the people of the neighborhood. And they were very small places that had maybe seating for fifty or seventy five mm -hmm. people, and in this very small intimate setting, I would get to see these amazing performers, and neatest thing was that. Whenever I would ask them if I could do an interview, they would just be beside themselves going, you want to interview me? And yes, I would love to do this. And to just be, you know, so accepted. And they were so excited to be actually getting some attention because they hadn't gotten much press attention at that point in time. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so they were just delighted. And so they made just the most wonderful people to interview just so open and you know answer any question you've got and it was just it was a fascinating time and it opened me to a world of music that I had 
that point really not been exposed to. Mm -hmm. And I, I just couldn't believe the talent before my eyes. Can I ask you, who was your favorite from that stable of performers and singers? Absolutely, it was James Brown. I was going he, to have to say he's the hardest working man yeah. in show business for a reason. And <laughs> gosh, just just an amazing thing. What was he like to interview? Yeah. He was so incredible because I met him at, it was the Apollo Club, and I took photographs and did a review of the show for Rhythm and News. And when I introduced myself, I asked him if I could do an interview and he said well I'm leaving right now but you know if you come to my hotel I'm staying at the the Continental on Sunset Boulevard tomorrow I'll sit down with you and we'll have an interview I went home to my folks home in Anaheim that night and then drove up to Hollywood the next day and he invited me into his hotel room and what took me aback the very first thing was he was sitting in in an upright chair and his hairdresser was putting his hair in probably like four inch diameter rollers because they wanted to smooth it out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and so here he was sitting with rollers on top of his head doing the interview with me didn't didn't think <laughs> twice about it didn't wasn't embarrassed it was just it, it was just as casual as if you were talking to your next door neighbor and he was just the sweetest man I I just I couldn't say enough good things about him and and because a year or two later I would have a lot of British groups coming over when I was writing for the NME and they would say could you get us can you get us into see James Brown and occasionally <laughs> you know he would be in town when they'd be in town and I would arrange for them to be at his show and so I saw the whole ending with throwing off the cape, and I must have seen that a dozen times. But it was great every time because, I mean, he, he was the one who started that whole thing. You know, Elvis would imitate it later. Mm-hmm. Um, Mickey Dolenz would imitate it in yeah, his time. Absolutely. But, but there was no one like James no. to, to do that. So. Um, my only regret, as, as is the case with, with a number of people that I was fortunate enough to meet in Hollywood, is that I did not get a picture of us together. And that would just, that would be the, the ultimate memento. But he did autograph a very sweet photograph to me, and I certainly cherish that. Fantastic. So you kind of cut your teeth with these soul artists and rhythm and blues artists. Mm-hmm. And the way that I did my first interview with the Dave Clark Five. Actually, that preceded, you know, starting to work for Rhythm and News. Oh, it was, oh, it was okay. because they had seen my article on the Dave Clark Five that I had printed in the school newspaper in their in our entertainment section, and I totally got just really razzed by my co-workers on the paper. They just thought that it was so not cool to be doing it about a long-haired group you know, and you know, and and they, and they said, you know, why don't you write about real artists like Bob Dylan or you know whatever their example was of what real music was? And I just kind of said, eh, whatever, you know. I had a lot of fun watching them, and you know, I wanted to interview them, and so I did. And you know, diss me all you want, but I had a blast. There you go. Yeah. 
So after all that time of first the Dave Clark Five Band in high school and then working for Rhythm and News, mm -hmm. I guess your next stop was Tiger Beat. How did that happen? Well, I'm just going to say that I had made some contacts in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And up till this time, I had been contributing to Rhythm and News. But, but that was a little uh, weekly newspaper run by a mom and daughter team. And they it literally, it was mimeographed. And mm, yeah. many of your listeners, probably the majority, will not even know what mimeograph means. But it was our form of reproduction mm -hmm. before, before copiers... And, and they certainly didn't have any kind of the money to do, to do printing, letterpress printing. So, and they would distribute it weekly to the local music stores in Southern California, and it sold for five cents. So, needless to say, I was not paid. It, right. it, 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 it was just the fun of going out on these interviews and having entree to some really interesting people. But then I was at some event somewhere or at one of the clubs in Hollywood with just a friend. And they said, well, why don't you work somewhere where you can get paid for it? And that literally was the first time it was put into my head that, well, that would be fun to have all these good times and amazing, unique experiences and get paid for it. It's like, where do I sign up? Mm -hmm. So through a couple of people in Hollywood, it led me to Tiger Beat. And, of course, over the last five years, I've written my memoir of those days. And all those details will be in the book, which will be, you know, out in 2017. Up till then, I'll leave the details for the book. But <laughs> they started me, me out in my uh, last semester of junior college uh, as an intern. And I just, I took my required classes. But then I worked about 20 hours a week up in Hollywood. Wow. Yeah. And then, of course, when the school year ended, I had been accepted to San Jose State, which was a very good journalism school. And I mean, my plan was to get a bachelor's degree in journalism. And I, I really didn't have any specifics. You know, I assumed I'd go to work for a newspaper. But that was that was overtaken by Chuck Law for sending me on tour with Paul Revere and the Raiders and the monkeys and all the things that happened in the summer of uh, 66 just waylaid those plans completely. Mm. Yeah, that must have been a really hard choice. San Jose State or tour <laughs> with Paul Revere and the Raiders and the monkeys. Hmm. Yes, you got it. You got the scenario down, uh, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Since this is a monkeys podcast, do you have any particular favorite monkey songs? I think uh, one of my all-time favorites, just because it was the first song I ever heard of theirs, and the first time I saw them and met them in person, and that was when they they debuted the the train, the last train to Clarksville, which left from Union Station, went down to Del Mar. It was a radio promotion, and they had a bunch of fans, but they had one car of journalists, and we were not really told a whole lot. We, we took the train ride down to Del Mar, which had been made into Clarksville for the day. We were on a kind of a bleacher setup out on the beach. So they had set up bleachers where we, we were all seated. And then the next thing we knew, we heard this 
rat-a-tat sound, and lo and behold, here come four helicopters and out jump four monkeys, and they run across the beach and jump on stage, played their instruments and sang songs, you know, and it was fabulous. And they mean, I just sat there in my head going, these guys are going to be huge. And I, I, I just could feel it in my bones. Well, you were right. Well, let's kick this one off. Last train to Clarksville, right in? Right on. Woo-hoo. for Tiger Beat? There were kind of a lot of questions about this in general. Kind of the one uh, that I want to start off with was one from Melanie Mitchell, our co-host. She was curious, was Tiger Beat 
making pop culture or just reflecting it? Could could did Tiger Pete like have the power to make or break stars? I would say in the beginning it was it was reporting on pop culture. It was mm-hmm. telling the story and then as Chuck Lawfer, the publisher over the years he did reach a point when he saw what happened with the monkeys mm. and he, he saw what Raybert did for with their I hate to use the word but with their product mm-hmm. uh, which was you know Davy Mickey Peter and and um, Mike he too began the wheels turning and he thought well why don't I n- not only just publicize the, the stars and the teen idols but why don't I get all the pieces of the pie I'm going to discover someone I'm going to manage their recording career or their TV career and then they're going to be featured in Tiger Beat but I'm going to get the benefits of every level so he really he broadened his scope beyond a a magazine and and the sales of the magazine and the ads in the magazine he, he just you know he wanted a bigger piece of the pie Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, it was strictly getting the word out and writing about pop culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rick Wrights wanted to know, how much free reign did you have with the questions you asked during interviews? Were you able to kind of talk about whatever you felt was pertinent or were topics kind of set beforehand? I had 100% free reign, I would say. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, it was a very small organization when I when I first went to work there. There was there was Chuck who was the publisher. There was Ralph Finner who was the editorial director. Lottie Powell came over from Teen Magazine mm-hmm. with them, and so she was writing many of the articles. She was also you know soon to be a young mom, and so she she spent most of her time in the office, just mm-hmm. doing everything. I mean, at first, she was the receptionist, the secretary, the editorial assistant, and anything else they needed. But everybody worked on the magazine. And then I came into the fold. We had an art director, of course, who, who did the graphics. But we were a pretty small little group. And over the next three, four years, it would grow exponentially. But at, in those early days, it was just a very small group. And... When I first interviewed with Ralph, he said, well, I want you to write me, you know, two stories, but, but I want to see Tiger Beat style. Well, you know, I had been doing the five W's for the junior college newspaper, right. so I literally went out and bought my first Tiger Beat. <laughs> I, I, had, I had not bought a copy before I went in to interview Ralph, believe it or not. I could see, you know, where they were coming from. So I basically rewrote my original interview and how I got the interview with Dave Clark Five, and then Ralph did the rewrite on it. He named it, the headline he put on it was The Dashing Daring Deeds of the Dave Clark Five. <laughs> and then, yeah, that doesn't that sound like Tiger Beat? Come on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he would add little bits and pieces throughout it, like, you know, here I am in their hotel room and they're watching such and such on TV and oh so and so is so cute. He's got his shirt off and and then Ralph added the line and even oh they were barefoot and even their toes were cute. <laughs> 
So I, I, I have to say, I, I want to establish even today, that was Ralph's line, not mine. But as I spent more time at Tiger Beat, I realized this is a little bit what they're looking for. And mine weren't, I wouldn't say they were over the top, but I did begin to write in the Tiger Beat style. Right. And, and I have to hand it to Chuck and Ralph. They knew what they were doing. They knew what their audience was. You know, they knew who they were writing to, and and it fit. It was not like I was being asked to write something less than. It was just I was being asked to write in a in a different genre, so to speak. Yeah, no, I totally get it, and it, it yeah. reminds me a lot of reading those same magazines in <laughs> in the eighties <80s. laughs> when I was in the target demographic, and kind of on that that point of writing for your audience, you were covering, you know, rock stars in the 1960s, but you were writing for relatively young teenage girls, you know, even what we'd be calling tweens today. So what, to what degree did you have to kind of sanitize the, what you saw and knew about the acts you were covering? Well, certainly there was, we were aware of the audience's age. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think moms would be handing out quarters to their daughters um, or their sons, for that matter, if, if, they're, if we had put in verbatim quotes that maybe had some off-color language. <laughs> you know, they didn't right. want their kids reading that. And, and, you know, it was the 1960s. This was, this was a much more innocent time. So we weren't, we weren't trying to be a tabloid. Mm-hmm. We, so we were trying to present the stars in their best light. We weren't even tempted to, you know, if somebody said, you know, nasty things when I was doing an interview, that wouldn't go in the story. Right. Um, and the same thing with uh, anything, you know, like with the David Cassidy was a chain smoker. I mean, you know, <laughs> we, we never printed that. Mm-hmm. And until the day he decided to quit. And of course, we turned that one quote, you know, which came about, you know, during an interview, him telling me, I've decided I'm not going to smoke anymore. And of course, the headline on that month's Tiger Beat was David quits. And then the whole story was about how he, he hated, you know, that he was addicted to smoking and he decided to quit. And that was, and of course, we ran a photograph with him as, with a cigarette in his hand. And that's why I was so shocked when I saw on, on the Zilch uh, Facebook page some pictures of Davy smoking because I personally, even though I spent a great deal of time around Davy, I never saw him smoke a cigarette. So I was just like, What's Davey doing with a cigarette in his hand? I was just like, whoa. Well, that was the first reaction I had to the, one of those pictures when I was 10. So, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And it, like it was a, you know, it was a cool thing for adults. I look back at, in fact, I looked at one of my gourmet magazines the other day because I was making a, a recipe from a, a 90s a gourmet magazine. Mm-hmm. And here, here was a, an advertisement for Cartier cigarettes, mm-hmm. you know, in Gourmet Magazine. Woo! And, and it's just like we forget how yeah. commonplace that was, that, that it, was, it was probably, you know, they probably had cigarette ads all through Leave it to Beaver or whatever show, you know, mm-hmm. Lassie. But yet 
that was something that was supposed to be very tab taboo for young people. Right. You'll have two, two chances to see Peter Tork and Shoe Suede Blues in the only two appearances in 2016. Two, two Peter Tork and Shoe Suede Blues shows. Friday, October 14th at Club 66 in Edgewood, Maryland. Show starts at 7 p.m. Come meet Peter Tork and the rest of Shoe Suede Blues. Hang out, dance, and have a good time. Then see them again Sunday, October 16th at the Infinity Music Hall, Hartford, Connecticut at 7.30 p.m. Do not miss these two chances to see Peter Tork up close and personal with Shoe Suede Blues both at Edgewood, Maryland and Hartford, Connecticut. Two, two, Peter Tork and the Shoe Suede Blues. Be there or be square. Don't miss it. The only chance to see Peter Tork and Shoe Suede Blues in 2016. One of our listeners, Michael Boyce, writes, Was there a rivalry between you and other teen magazines, such as Sixteen Magazine? <laughs> well, I would say there was a rivalry between probably Chuck Lawfer mm. and Sixteen Magazine. He... 16 was the number one selling magazine in the U.S., you know, teenage magazine. And it wasn't too long after they started that Tiger Beat became a strong number two. And we were very much in a competition for our stories, our interviews, photographs, access to the, to the most popular groups. The thing is, it wasn't like it was openly discussed. Uh -huh. it, it was just, it was the underlying fact that we wanted to be number one. We, we mm -hmm. felt we were turning out a superior product. And certainly when Chuck went to, you know, four color printing and we had full color photographs, not color printed on newsprint. When, when he went to the slick paper covers and that gave us a big boost up. Then the other part of, of that competition was originally they had a fictitious character called Sandy Deming. And Sandy was age 16. So stories written by, sometimes by Lottie, sometimes by Ralph. It would be, I interview so-and-so by Sandy Deming, age 16. So they were portraying that someone just like the readers was out interviewing the stars uh -huh. and then lo and behold you know Ann Moses comes in for an interview and I sort of you know morphed into that role I became the, the real teenager because I was 18 um, uh, when I when I started at Tiger Beat and and so I I I turned into that fictional character because and so once they realized that we we we've, we've got a real Sandy Deming here, you know, not fictionalized, and then it was the race was on that I you know have my picture taken with every one of the stars I interviewed. We wanted you know we wanted to push that we were there in Hollywood where where all the stars were, and mm -hmm. sixteen was holed up in New York, and they had occasional access. Because they didn't, it's not like they had someone in Hollywood going out and doing interviews. It was all Gloria Stavers, and she did it all from New York. And so we felt that gave us the edge. Mm -hmm. 
Christine Carlson Wolf writes, do you think people took you less seriously as a professional because of the magazine that you worked for? Earlier you were speaking about how some of the people are saying, why are you wasting your time doing this pop stuff? Right. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any resistance at all once I was at Tiger Beat. <laughs> I was writing exactly what the readers wanted to know about. And the thing was that the, you know, the publicists I was in contact with, the PR firms, you know, the different groups, their, their own representatives. At first, it was me calling them saying, may I interview such and such a group or such mm -hmm. and such an artist. And then as, you know, within probably the first year of being there, they were calling us. And it's like, remember, I gave, got you this interview with so-and-so. Would you do this interview on our new up-and-coming artist, so-and-so? You know, I can remember one time, uh, um, Graylin Landon at RCA, uh -huh. he found out that a friend of mine was a big Elvis fan. And so he would always call me and say, won't you please do this on Elvis? This was before Elvis's big comeback. Right. And it would be like, yeah, okay, I'll give me tickets mm -hmm. to, to the new movie, um, you know, live a little, love a little, and, and, and I'll go see it. And then I'd, I'd put something in my column. But then at the same time, he, he'd call me up and he'd say, I have a new artist I'd like you to meet. Would, would you, you know, would you come over and, and go to lunch with us or something? And I really didn't care about free lunches then, like I don't now. And so, but I do, I, you know, it was like, well, you did me a favor, I'll do you a favor. And it would kind of be, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch mm -hmm. yours. So the person he wanted to meet was Harry Nielsen. So it's like, yeah, I went as a favor and I met Harry Nielsen and, mm. you know, we struck up a friendship and it was like, he, he was one of the neatest people I ever met. So it was like, here I, I think I'm doing somebody a favor, you know, just being, just doing this give and take of, of Hollywood PR, and I come out the winner. And then another time he also called me up and said, oh, I have another new artist. He's a really good songwriter, and would you interview him? And I said, you know, I don't have time, I, you know, and I sent one of our editorial assistants. And for that I could shoot myself because it was John Denver. And oh. I... Be I became a huge John Denver mm -hmm. fan. He was doing his first album for RCA. It hadn't even been released yet. But, and the way Graylin sold him to me was, oh, he wrote Leaving on a Jet Plane for Peter, Paul, and Mary. And it's like, I knew that song, and I'd seen Peter, Paul, and Mary, the Hollywood Bowl, and it's like, oh, okay, but, you know, I just don't have time. And, and now it's like, oh, I wish I'd interviewed John. <laughs> the one that got away. Yeah. The one that got away. They called me to interview Neil Diamond. So I got a call from a friend and you know who was with a PR firm, and they asked me to interview Neil Diamond. And he only he had one hit song out. You know, he had Cherry Cherry, and right. he was appearing at some little club, you know, on the on the strip. And I and again I did it as a favor because he wasn't yet a big star. Who knew if he'd have a second hit record? Right. But I went and interviewed him, and this was so early in his career. He was absolutely shy. He was unassuming. He kind of would hold his head down when he would answer. He was probably more nervous than I was. 
And it was just the cutest thing. And just, you know, you got to see that side of the real person before he became a superstar. So that was a, that was a real treat. Fantastic. The thing was, I wasn't trying to be noticed by the Los Angeles Times or the Washington Post or, you know, Life Magazine. I was writing for our readers. And so anyone I interacted with, they were like, appreciative if I would publicize their, you know, whoever was in their PR firm or whatever. It was just very comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, it's weird we're talking about how like other writers would look at at you for doing pop music. It it kind of has never really changed, has it? I mean, you, you, you've got something like the people who run Rolling Stone, who run the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they have pretty much tried to keep a lot of bands that the public really likes out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And we're, we're kind of seeing that today, wouldn't you Yeah, agree? I, I, I just don't get it because, um, you know, I know you've been doing your campaign for the monkeys, that they should be inducted, and, and it's just kind of blows my mind. They haven't been. And, I mean, are you kidding? Accomplish all that they accomplished and, and someone else is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Hello? It, it just doesn't make sense. The same thing with Paul Revere and the Raiders. I mean, for, for the two years when they were on top, mm-hmm. they, they were the best act that you could see. Mm-hmm. And, and it, you know, at least here in the United States, you know, they didn't, they didn't do a lot of worldwide stuff. But they, they were a true, they were just one of the biggest of their time. So why have they been slighted also?
And Paul Revere really worked them boys, didn't he? Oh. Those guys were tight as far as mm -hmm. playing and executing what they were planning yeah. to do on that stage. They, they signed contracts with him. There were things in the contract that said, you will not do this, you will not do that. He was, he was kind of like, um, he was a business owner mm -hmm. and kind of a father figure. It was, it was a little, you know, bundled package of, of that whole, whole group. Mm -hmm. he, he ran it like a business and right. he, and yet it didn't, the entertainment value benefited from that. Oh, it absolutely. Didn't, it didn't, didn't suffer from it at all. Well, if people were honest, James Brown kind of did the same thing when he yeah. went out. He he went out like he was taking over a small country. He he was not playing yep. around. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And he thought about every part of his act. Yes. His clo his clothes had to be just so. He would right. have them designed. You know, all the little details that you, you don't really realize go into it, but boy they were all in James's head. They were all in in Uncle Paul's head. Uh -huh. Um it it um they were very shrewd businessmen. Very much so. Yep. Steve Carp writes in that you worked a lot with Paul Revere and the Raiders. What were they like, and do you have any particular memories of working with them? I have very vivid memories of working with the Raiders. I, I met them about a month after I had started at Tiger Beat. They came, I didn't know this was really going to happen, but they came trooping into the office one afternoon. We had offices at 1800 North Highland, which is now I believe is something like it's either just down the street from the Kodak Theater it, it's become its own thing uh, anyway we were about two blocks off Hollywood Boulevard on Highland and, and here they come in their full Raider outfits and they're carrying this six foot tall tiger and they come barreling through the door and they're going happy anniversary and what they were doing is they this had been arranged, unbeknownst to me, because I'd been there a whole month, and they were coming in so we could photograph us celebrating the first anniversary of the magazine. So it wasn't going to appear until the September issue, wow. but, you know, the time worked for there to come in, and we did a whole photo shoot on the roof. But they, they were just like you used to see them, if you've ever seen... If, if anyone ever got to see where the action is yes. and, mm -hmm. and those shows, they were exactly like you saw them there. They were silly. They teased one another. It was fun, fun, fun all the time when you were around them. And it was genuine. That You know, the way they interacted with one another was so genuine that it wasn't, it wasn't some act. It was just the way they acted around one another and it couldn't have been more fun. I first got to go on tour with them for a week in, um, believe it, yeah, it was July, I think July of 66. And we started in Baltimore. I flew into Baltimore. And then from there, we drove down through Florida. We, oh, I guess we, I guess we flew to Atlanta, picked up Dino, Desi, and Billy, and then flew to Jacksonville. And then from there, it was a bus tour down, down to Miami. And I mean, what a week out of my life. I mean, here I was, I'd been with Tiger Beat for six months, and, and I'm on tour with all these guys. I was the only woman on the tour bus. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't knock that. Mm -hmm. And it, 
you know, and I already knew Dino, Desi, and Billy pretty well, so we were buddies. And most of the people were my exact age or a year or two younger or a year or two older. That was the, the, you know, the age group that was going on. And, I mean, it was just fun all the time. And um, we'd, we'd often, we'd stay up through much of the, the night. Um, you know, we all had hotel rooms at, at the Holiday Inns. And then it, we'd stay up through the night, whether they'd go out to a local club and maybe jam with a group, or we'd just stay up late out on the swings, fooling around at, at you know, the children's playground area. Whatever it was, we'd stay up half the night and then, and then usually sleep on the bus, which was not a schedule I was used to at all. But it was a very memorable trip, and I was a, a happy camper. <laughs> wow. So you are at Tiger Beat now. Did you realize the, the scope of what you would be doing with this and, and how big it would get and that you'd be talking about it all these years later? Absolutely not. At the time, you know, I, I, I valued every moment I had at Tiger Beat. I knew that we had built it into something that was enjoyed by a lot of people. I, I got fan mail along with the, the stars of the day, you know, nothing in comparison to the volume that they did. But, but I, I, they would write me letters. And, and finally, I got to the point where I really couldn't answer them. It was just, it was out of the question. So I wrote a little postcard and we had it printed that said, thank you for writing me. And I'm sorry, I can't answer every letter personally. And then I paid my mom to address them. And the only thing, if you ever got a three or a five page letter handwritten from Ann Moses, it was my mom because she would read some of the letters and she'd get so involved with the questions they would ask me about their boyfriend or their their sister who was being mean or whatever. She became like Dear Abby. She would write them back and give them advice. And, and <laughs> luckily, you know, it, there was never anything I'm, I'm sure she helped some people that, you know, the, the, an outside person gave them some advice. And I'm sure it was very welcome by those who received letters from her. But um, um, uh, at the time, you know, I thought it was a pretty small group in general. It wasn't until the, the wonderful Internet, you know, came into our lives that I began to realize the scope of what I had actually done during those years. Because I, I never knew, w what I never realized was the extent to which I actually Im impacted certain people's lives. And I've only, only since I've started my blog and my Facebook page have I received letters. And they're from people who said, I went into journalism because of you. and. I mean, that just had me in tears falling out of my chair. It's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. it I would have no way of, of knowing that. And I think that's what finally got me to sit down and write my memoir. Because once I did leave Tiger Beat, I, I kind of put it out of my life. Mm -hmm. I, I, right. it, 
and then that's a that's a whole story in itself, which I certainly talk about in in my memoir. But I just put it behind me. And when we when I would come into contact with people over the next twenty thirty years, every once in a while they'd say, "Well, what's this picture of you with Elvis?" You know, I might have a picture in my house or something, and I'd say, "Oh, I used to you know be this editor of a teen magazine," and they go, "Oh." Neat, you should write a book. But that that's as far as it would go. Mm-hmm. And then when the internet happened and I started putting up posts and I had people say, I spent all my babysitting money on Tiger Beat. I used to mow the lawn so I could buy Tiger Beat. And and I mean I it just it blew me away. And that was the impetus to really put my story down down on paper. Yeah. Or on computer or what Whatever the medium of the time is. Yes, it's so, yes. it was a computer. I'll so, t- so I Anne, went, you yes. know, when I was a kid, I thought you were a pretty swinging chick. You were you were there in, in the cool outfits and everything, and I wrote you this letter saying I had a crush on you. Are you telling me that what I got back was not from you? Uh, I'm telling you that, yes. This interview is over. Now, to be to be truth to be truthful, you know, I only recall receiving, you know, letters from girls. I was not aware of of the number of males that were also reading Tiger Beat, but I I actually became very aware of it in about three months ago. I received a Facebook a messenger message. And it was from a person who said that he, was, he would, had been in journalism for the last 30 years. He, he had made journalism his career. And his name is Robert Pella. Mm-hmm. And he said I was, he was speaking to a lecture of journalism students because we have quite a nice journalism school. It's at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. And he was giving a lecture on how he got started in journalism and how he's made it his career and at the end of the lecture he had a Q&A session and some and he had said the first question he got the young woman said how did you become interested in journalism and he said when I was nine years old I wanted to be Ann Moses and I mean when I'm reading this I'm just I can't even I can't even tell you what I was feeling inside it was like somebody's making this up and he went on to say that he he was a regular reader of Tiger Beat. He um, he in fact wanted to not necessarily follow in my footsteps because he wasn't interested in writing about about music or or pop culture necessarily. But it gave him the impetus to want to go into writing into journalism. So when he wrote me that note, I said, "Oh, I would have given anything to hear your lecture." You know, because I lived nearby, because he gave the lecture at, in Phoenix, and I live in a Phoenix suburb. Once I wrote him back with that, it's like, well, we've got to meet. And so we've become really good friends. It is wow. the neatest thing. In fact, we're having, I'm having dinner with he and his husband tonight, and it's just, it, it, the Internet has made the world so small. It's just... It really has, I, I just 
can't believe the impact it's had on lives, that, that I could find this out. I mean, how would I have ever found this out under any other circumstance with, with our communication systems as they are today? Agreed, 100%. But that just, it, and the very best thing is when, when he first had my husband and I over for a beautiful lunch, he told me the story about him being in, in whatever grade you're in, in ninth grade, I guess that's fourth grade, mm-hmm. and whenever he'd take a test, his teacher would say, okay, if you get finished with your test early, then there's an extra credit question that you can answer. <laughs> and so the extra credit question that day was, who do you want to be when you grow up? And he filled it out, and he put Ann Moses, and he got sent to the principal's office. And at the principal's office, the principal said, why would you put down a girl's name, and why would you put down Ann Moses? And he, he was, he'd said he was so flustered, he didn't know what to say, he didn't know how to say it, and he just said, because we have the same birthday, and we do have the same birthday. So it's like, the world keeps shrinking. So mm-hmm. I just, I thought that was just the neatest story I've ever heard. Yeah. Wow. That's what I say too, Sarah. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how those things yeah. happen. Yeah. It was, it was so rewarding. So, Anne, do you have another monkey song you'd like us to play? You know, the new songs on the new album are just, I love me and Magdalena. I love She Makes Me Laugh. I love You Bring the Summer. Those just... Uh, they, they took me right back to those days. I mean, and, and whenever, I, I guess it's their early stuff that was my favorite. You know, even Last Train to Clarksville. It, you, you just, I, I, you know, whether I'm walking through Whole Foods or whatever, and it comes on, I bopping down the aisle because <laughs> it just, it, it takes me back every time. Well, here's She Makes Me Laugh. All right.
Cindy Large writes in, aside from the monkeys, who were some of your favorite and least favorite people to interview? But first, just like kind of give us a shotgun blast of just some of the people that you got to work with, and then you can answer that question. Okay, well, um, certainly all the all the faves. I mean, Bobby Sherman, David Cassidy, the the Partridge family, um, of of course the monkeys, uh, Dino, Dizzy, and Billy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in in turn, I got to meet their their some of their famous parents. That was pretty cool. Um, I loved all the British groups that came over, the Mindbenders, the Yardbirds, the Who were crazy, wow. um, Donovan, well, Herman's Hermits, because we were the same age, and I went on a date with Carl Green, the bassist, so I wrote about that in my blog. I kissed a hermit, and I liked it. <laughs> and uh, the Bee Gees, there, there were so many, so many groups out there, and I was because I was also writing for, for New Musical Express, which is, you know, one of the big pop music weekly newspapers in the UK, I, I just had the opportunity to meet so many that I wouldn't have met if we were only talking about those that were featured in Tiger Beat. Because some of them were groups that were just on a different level than just being teen idols. I mean, Eric Clapton got yeah. to go to dinner with he and my good friend Jeannie, Jeannie the Taylor. And I, I'm just, I'm, I'm about three-fourths of the way through his biography, and it's, it's so fascinating to know that I met him so early in his career and how I, I describe him as being so shy. And then in his book, he, he totally writes about how shy he was in the beginning. And it's like, oh, I, I nailed it, <laughs> you know? So, so that was pretty interesting. But... I did just so many people, and then and then there were some really neat behind-the-scenes people that I got to meet too. Um, you know, certainly Dick Clark. Oh, I mean, yes. he he's an icon. Um, Deservedly Derek, so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And of course, I did get to meet the Rolling Stones. I never got to meet the Beatles, and that's mm-hmm. another very interesting story on my blog called "A Dodgy Day for the Beatles" because. <laughs> Although I never got to meet them, I was a few feet away at their press conference. The neat story behind that one was my brother was, you know, going to dental school at the University of Southern California, and he and a friend had signed up to be rent-a-cops to go out with rock groups and, and be a rent-a-cop, you know, a security guard. And he got assigned to the Beatles when they, when they played uh, Dodger Stadium. And because they got trapped under Dodger Stadium for two hours because the fans blocked all the entrances and they couldn't get out. My brother got to spend two hours with the four of them and uh, he, he did what I never got to do. <laughs> and didn't your brother and John trade badges or something? Well, as they were, as they were, when it was just about time for them to go, my brother's bad said Moses. Now, interestingly enough, his friend, and he's been a good friend of mine for a long, long time, his name was Jimmy Christ, but it's spelled C-H-R-I-S-T. And that appearance was about two weeks after John Lennon had made his very infamous statement about the Beatles being bigger than Christ. And therefore, as they were leaving, um, John Lennon had spent a lot of time talking to my brother 
and he asked him for his name badge, which was Moses, and then Paul McCartney asked for Jim's badge, and it said Christ. And, of course, my brother never, never knew what happened after that night until I put up my story on my blog, and then one of the people who read that story, who has also become a friend, his name is Jim Malahi, he sent me a picture of John Lennon with the badge on the next night at Candlestick Park. And it was from a book about the Beatles. But I had never known the, the full circle of that story until that. And I sent it to my brother. And I mean, it just, it just made his day because he, he had, I had taken pictures of him with uh, the Beatles, you know, for, because I was, I was in the front row at the press conference, so I had taken pictures of him with the Beatles standing next to them as a security guard. And so he had that picture, but now he completed it with with John wearing his name tag and it just <laughs> and it and it came full circle. So that was again, small world, amazing, magical things happening. Mm-hmm. And I would like to point out when you met the Yardbirds that some guitar player, Jimmy Page, was there. <laughs> That's correct. And mm-hmm. it's, there's there's a very cool picture of Peter Tork, you, and Jimmy Page. I can't remember who else is in the shot. Mickey, Mickey's to, to Jimmy's right. Yes. J- or Jimmy's left. He's in the right-hand side of the picture. But it and just then, looks and like the, a party. And the record execs are, in, are behind them. But yes, a lot of times, because the British groups wanted more publicity mm-hmm. when they'd come over to the United States, they would call me being the Hollywood correspondent to NME, and so that I would send the stories back so they would get lots of coverage in the UK, and and they would call me and say, you know, we're doing this, you know, do you want to come and do an interview? And then when I'd get together with them, they'd say, can you get us on the monkey set? So I took Dave Clark on the monkey set one time, and that was a, a great day. He was just... You know, uh, Dave would turned out to be very entrepreneurial in music yes. and and films and things. So I mean, he was fascinated. Jimmy went out there and he just he loved his day on the monkey set. And of course, they thought it was very cool to have you know this cool mm-hmm. guitarist out there, you know, wanting to meet them. And uh, th- that great picture was taken um, with Peter has me in a headlock. I absolutely. <laughs> I love that picture, uh, and and so that would that would often happen, and you know another time, um, Jim Valley. They asked Jim Valley, who was Harpo in Paul Revere and the Raiders. They asked him to do a scene as Harpo, and they filmed it on the set. So the day he was filming, a genie the tailor, mm-hmm. also came out to the set, and we were all out on the set. And um, he ended, unfortunately, Jim ended up on the cutting room floor, but he had, he had you know, it would have been great. It didn't make it in, into the, to the finished cut, and, and it, it was, we all had fun on the set, so. Fantastic. Well, I noticed there was one part of Cindy Larger's question you didn't answer. Who oh. was your least favorite person to interview in all okay. of those pop well, artists? I, I'm saving that one for the book. Ah. Okay. Yeah, come on. Um, okay. But my second <laughs> least favorite was Roger Miller, who, who, who at the time I was doing a story for New Musical Express because he had the hit record, England Swings. Like a pendulum do. Like a pendulum do. 
And I went out to the set of a local dance show called Night Street West. Mm -hmm. And he was just awful to me. He was condescending. It was like, it was as if he had been, his arm had been twisted by his manager and said, you've got to go on this teenage show. Because he was a grown man, you know, he just had a, a baby and he was married. And, and he was more a country singer. Mm -hmm. And so that song kind of turned out to be a crossover hit yes. for him. But he was very, I think, reluctant to promote it on a, on a teen dance show. And so he just didn't appreciate me at all. And, of course, I wrote it up like he was the nicest guy going. But now the truth can be told. The he, truth he is out. He treated me badly. I'm sad, but you know, that's what you're here to do, to tell us, tell us the unvarnished truth. So. That's true. That's true. And at the end of the day, I think I went home and I said, well, what the heck, you know, NME's going to pay me whatever they paid me for a story, you know, 25 mm -hmm. or $50. And it was like, I'm just, I'm going to write up my story and get paid and to heck with him. You know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't take it personally. Yeah. Good. No? Good. Who cares? Yeah, you can't and stuff like that. Yeah, totally. Here we come, walk down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys, and people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. We've kind of been dancing around the topic for a little while, but here we go. I know you did a lot of work with kind of this little-known band, this, you know, kind of obscure pop band. And how did you meet the Monkees? And, and what were your first impressions of both the concept of the band, you know, and the TV show and all that? And also, what were your first impressions of the guys themselves? The first time I did meet them was on the last train to Clarksville. That, right. It, the, it was the radio promotion. And, of course, my first time seeing them was when they, you know, we had, we had run, we had gotten a photograph from Screen Gems and run it in, in the probably August issue of 66. And then in the September issue was when we um, showed the pictures from the last train to Clarksville. And so I actually met them all in the train car on the way back. They, they, played, mm -hmm. they played a couple songs as a group with their instruments in the caboose right. for, you know, everyone who could fit in there. And then they, they you know, saw, went through the cars with the fans and, you know, kind of just had a real quick meet and greet. And then they came into the, to the press car and really spent time talking with us. So Davey was the first one I met. In my mind, he has always been the monkey's ambassador. He, yeah. he is so just comfortable with people and so open as a person that, you know, you, you just want to give him a hug like, you've, like you already know him. Just nice person. You could just tell from moment one. So even though that encounter was very brief, then I had time to talk to Mickey. I, I think I was introduced to Peter and Mike, but I didn't spend hardly any time with right. them on that trip. And then the next thing you know, I mean, by the next week, their, their show had aired. That was on a Sunday night, and I think they, they, their first show aired the next night on Monday night. 
on on television. So at that point in time, I started literally going out to the set at least three days a week. And I mean, my publisher basically told me, you're going to spend your time with the monkeys, you know, whether it's at Columbia Ranch on their outdoor sets or screen gyms, the indoor sets. I was there. I spent just a great deal of my time there. And my my very first time going into screen gyms was um, was that September. And so I'd been working for Tiger Beat for nine months. And it was literally the first time I'd been on a TV soundstage. First time I'd been through the, the guard gated screen gyms. And then, you know, I knew enough to, you know, the guy told me where to park and because uh, I'd been cleared at the gate and, and but I was alone. And then I literally had to go to whichever soundstage it was. And I, you know, I knew enough to know that you didn't open the door while the red light was going around because uh-huh. it said, don't open the door <laughs> if the red light's going around. And when it stopped, you know, I pulled open the door. Luckily, when I opened the door, you know, it was basically a closed set at that point in time. It's right. like, unless you had an invitation, it was just, it was the crew, the makeup people, sound technicians, cameramen, all that. And uh, I luckily, I spotted Davey right away, and he came over to me and said, let me take you inside here, you know. He said, don't watch the cables, Aww. and took me on a tour and then I mean he, again he was acting like the ambassador he mm-hmm. he immediately made me feel welcome to their little world but that was the start of getting to know each of them and then every time I would go out I would you know wait between shots who wasn't filming who could I talk to who had time they weren't doing other things you know we'd sit down for a period of time and and tape interviews and because of the volume of stuff that had to be produced probably not immediately but very very shortly you know within a couple of months we knew we were going to be producing um monkey spectacular magazine Mm -hmm. you know and so we really had a feel for the volume that would we were expected to put into these things there was never a time that's like oh i've got enough i don't need to go out there it's like it, it was it was a pretty constant thing and then as i got to know each one peter was always just a super friendly i mean to me he was the embodiment of the hippie movement and not the hippies that our parents looked at and said oh they're dirty and they don't take baths it it was the hippie movement where peter was always he was quite introspective he, he did a lot of reading. He, he read about the religions of the world. He, he, he really had a fine mind. And, and whenever I'd ask, I might ask him some innocuous question, you know, for the magazine, you know, what's your favorite color or, or what's this? But as we got to know one another, I, I could ask a, a really open-ended question and say, well, we have a letter from a little girl that's asking about such and such, or, you know, from a reader, and she's asking such and such, what what would you say to her? And I mean, he might go on for a half an hour. And of course, we would then break that up into five or 10 stories. But 
really what would come out would be, you know, would come from the mind of Peter. And he really is, you know, very intelligent and and just um, uh, and down to earth, just always willing to do whatever, you know, I needed to ask them to do. Because I was the one who said, okay, you're the guest editor this month. Would you write would you write in your own handwriting, you know, the, the guest editor column thing? And we never told them what to say in those, in those little guest editor mm-hmm. blurbs. It, it was from them. And so when you read Mike's, it, it's Mike coming through because he would put in there all his kind of flip-flopped, mm-hmm. you know, stream of consciousness kind of craziness that, yeah. that, it, that is Mike. That he's still and, doing today. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's like it's like we didn't say we're presenting you as Mike the monkey. You know, we we asked them. We we would often say, you know, be yourself and and would you do this? But you know, after a while, I would think it would have become extremely tedious for them. But in general, they they were always game to be a part of things. You mentioned how he was kind of very open and stuff. I've always got the impression from Peter, and kind of is backed up by what he did for a while when the monkeys stopped being a thing. He he became a teacher. Right. And there's so many times that I've witnessed him saying, oh, well, you can do it like this, or you can do this like that, or, or oh, this is, it's as simple as this. And, you know, and he just kind of does yep. that. It's a, it's a very natural thing him to do and that comes across in interviews or any clips you see on television or anything it's a perfect way to describe him because that that is him and so he was he was a joy to work with mickey could always be counted on to provide levity yeah no at at any point whether it was in between shooting scenes on the set and he'd come over and just sit down in the chair and you'd you'd all be sitting around it would be he would bring up a subject and make people laugh or he would play off of something somebody else said and and he really he was the he was the 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 the, the laugh track to uh, kind of everything that went on there mm-hmm. and 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 th- and that too seemed so natural for him and i don't know if his if his comedy came from a sense of you know, sometimes people will try and be funny to cover something up. I, I just think it was a very natural part of him and, and, the, and the person that he is, that, that he, will, he will joke about things and he'll make light of things. And it's just kind of his groove. I've always gotten the impression that he was uh, probably the person who learned the most from the improv classes with James Frawley. And I feel that Mickey is kind of like the glue of the monkeys in the sense that mm-hmm. there's never been a permutation of the monkeys without Mickey Dolenz. You know what I'm saying? Yes, very much so. And that any time someone starts to feel even remotely uncomfortable or a silence, God forbid, he mm-hmm. makes sure that it's filled. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you, you nailed that. Luckily, my first day out on the set, uh, Davey introduced me to James Frawley. And so I, I did spend many times chatting with him. And he was so integral to so many of the early shows. It was, it, it was a very symbiotic uh, relationship. 
they they worked so well together and he contributed so much you know the times i would see him he'd be directing and he would watch them improvise and watch them and maybe even encourage it from behind the scenes but he always knew when they'd gone too far in his mind Right. for what he was trying to accomplish with the, the storyline or how that whole show was, was shaping up that whole episode, he would, he would know when enough was enough. And I think he totally brought out the best in every one of them. Hi, this is Jim Frawley. I directed half the Monkey series. You're listening to Zilch, a Monkey's podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you've kind of mentioned that Davey was like the ambassador or the diplomat of the monkeys. He's kind of like the face of the monkeys or the mm-hmm. knight of the monkeys. Peter is the cleric or the teacher. And Mickey mm-hmm. is that glue, but he's also the harlequin or the joker. Mm-hmm. What would Mike be? What was your impressions of interviewing <laughs> yeah. Mike? Oh, maybe the curmudgeon? <laughs> You know, I know I describe Mike in my book as sardonic. Mm-hmm. Um, all I can tell you is what you saw and, and the smart aleck young man that you saw in his his screen test, mm-hmm. that that's Mike. That no. it, That's 100% Mike. He was so much himself that day that there was no doubt who and what they were hiring with Mike. And he was such a contrast to the other ones he did make the the fourth perfect puzzle piece because none of them was like the other one and they did manage to just put them together and and they couldn't have come up with a more perfect mix but mike he he was a smart aleck and sometimes he was a fun smart aleck you know how you can really enjoy when people are are being sarcastic or they're just being a smart ass and they're so much fun. And then other times it could be very um, kind of letting you know that mm, I've had enough of you. Um, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll check you later. And, and you know, I, I had to learn to really read those cues because Mike was not someone that could be pushed or forced to do anything he didn't want to do. No, he was very upfront about his boundaries in a sense. Oh, yeah, very much so. And and yet he, he did realize he had an obligation. He had an obligation to the show and to help promote it and the things which, you know, where my role came in. And um, But it, it wasn't too long before he figured out. At first he was, like, totally protective of Phyllis. And then as soon as Krishna was born, very, very, you know, no, you can't have any pictures. And then probably the show had been going on a year and it was I think about that point and I don't have my dates exactly in my head but at, at one point it was like why, why don't you take my wife out to lunch and she'll tell you about that and you know if I wanted to do you know how did you and Phyllis meet he goes well why don't I have you have Phyllis tell you the story and so and so I got to know Phyllis and she was just a sweetheart and she would. She would meet me. We'd go to the same restaurant in Beverly Hills. And she'd pull up in her big black car. I can't remember what it was. It was like a Le Mans or something. But it had totally blacked out windows, you know. It was right. the total Hollywood treatment. And we'd meet there and we'd have a nice long lunch. And so we had so many good stories um, 
Mike's life story is told by Phyllis or, or you know, how, how I met Mike or what it's like to be the wife of a monkey. Mm-hmm. But she would always also tell us other stories about Mike, which would become Mike's monkey talk column, where they were his own words, but basically they were from her mouth because he did not want to spend that kind of time with me to get those mm-hmm. those first person stories and it was like this is okay it's like we're we're really we're fulfilling the needs you know the things the readers want to know about and we just have to go about it a different way because it's mike and and his his quirky personality interesting solution to the problem yeah well, yeah i mean it was really okay with me i had some mm-hmm. really nice lunches and and she was she was a lovely woman had a great time. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like you really spent a lot of time hanging out with the monkeys for your job. I guess I had this vision in my head that you just kind of went out there one or two days a month, but it sounds like you were there pretty much all the time. I was there a lot of the time. And sometimes it would just be a fair few, few hours. My, right. my, my publisher really wanted to not see me in the office during those times, though. Uh-huh. It was like, I want you out there. And, 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 and that did enable me to write about other things that were going on. Like mm-hmm. uh, before Mickey and Samantha got married and right. Samantha. Samantha would be out on the set and she'd be sitting there doing her crocheting and you know she'd tell me oh yeah I want to open my own boutique and then you know I don't know months or a year later here we we show her in front of her shop you know Mm -hmm. where she and her mom had made every piece of clothing in the store by hand so it's it's those those you know the other people that were around I, I got to know one of the makeup men and and I would often visit with him one time mm-hmm. the make the makeup man it totally made me up as if I was going to be on television so he did the pancake makeup and false eyelashes and totally made up my eyes and the whole nine yards and it was like wow you know take a picture this looks really good <laughs> That little mask of pancake makeup just covers every flaw. It's quite nice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But but I never, you know, I never wore makeup back. I I wore eye makeup, but I never wore anything on my face in those days and uh, couldn't stand the feel of it. But Mm -hmm. that was fun to be, you know, a a movie star for a day. Mm -hmm. I have a question from Jennifer Sousa Rayner. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of look back when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan and that little blurb came up that said, you know, this is Paul, George, and Ringo, and then they showed a picture of John and said, sorry, girls, he's married. <laughs> now, you were talking about Phyllis and mm-hmm. uh, making mm-hmm. his wife as well. Was there any sort of thing when, when you first were interviewing the monkeys that you were like, kind of said, no, we're not going to talk about this as far as the different girlfriends that they might have had at the time? Uh, not not really. Um, it, it was very early on. Mike said, "I don't want photo- photographs of my wife right. and son." But the, you know, then he then he went to to you know he went over to England and spent time with the Beatles, and Phyllis went on the trip with him. So she was in all those pictures. So right. at at that point, he started to lighten up, 
And then, you know, one time we did a photo shoot with Phyllis up at, up at their brand new house. And mm-hmm. she, she, you know, she's in this fur coat that he bought her. You know, how times have changed. Um, and um, then uh, when, when Davy started dating Linda, mm-hmm. we, were, we were aware of their dating. We did a story of um, Davy's life story, and then we, we did a story on each of their houses. So we did a photo shoot at Davy's house, and he was, Linda was not in those pictures, but she was living with him. Mm-hmm. So it was like it, he wasn't trying to put it out as a secret. It was never spoken. Oh, don't don't write about Linda. Don't put oh. a picture of her in. But I guess it was out of respect and, and probably a little bit of self-service. <laughs> yeah. You know, because the married pop stars were not as popular as, you know, I mean, it's like the, the letters would pour in. Oh, my life ended today. David got married, you <laughs> yeah. know. And so we were a part of that in mm-hmm. that we didn't really want to make a big issue out of we weren't the National Enquirer. And then like Mickey and Samantha, he was so open about inviting Samantha on their tour of Japan, mm-hmm. on, on having her on the set in Hollywood, all this sort of thing. It, it's like, well, he's not hiding anything, so we didn't. Right. And, and then... Um, so it only when they did get, and of course when they got married, um, we you know we we got that picture from Henry Diltz, I'm sure, who was invited to the wedding. We were not invited to the any of the weddings. <laughs> so so the, those things that benefited everybody, we we shied away from, and and I didn't feel like we were doing a disservice to anybody. I mean, we were we were reacting to to the times, mm-hmm. I, I think more than anything, mm-hmm. and yeah. and um, and and had we put Davies married when he when he actually got married rather than six months later or whatever, would mm-hmm. would we have lost any magazine sales? Probably not, but it, it was just it seemed it seemed at the time like the right thing to do. Right. right. No, it makes sense. Well, not only that. They kind of called the shots in a sense, you know. Yeah. That, uh, now we live in a TMZ world where everything is known yeah. the second that it happens, yep. for good or for bad, and it's almost yes. like outing someone. Let them mm-hmm. figure out their time. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Now we have two quick questions here, and okay. uh, they're from two different people, but I'm going to read them both to you. One is Sarah, Sarah, and the other one is Tavia Zaldivar. Okay. Okay. What was the oddest fan behavior that you ever saw around the monkeys as far as, you know, fans of the monkeys? And what was the oddest monkey behavior that you ever saw, period? Tavia also writes, like the girl who mailed herself to Davy. Is that a true (laughs) thing? Is that an urban legend? Did it really happen? I can't remember, you know, that came into my mind when you were asking the question about mailing themselves, but I honestly can't remember that one. I know that sometimes fans would make their way to their homes. They usually didn't a- interact on that basis. When they were out somewhere, they were very good about doing what they could, you know, unless it got out of control. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say the craziest behavior I encountered on the part of fans was uh, when I traveled to Dallas, and let me see, that was that was June of 67, 
uh, I flew to Dallas because they were doing a show in Dallas and a show in Houston the, the next night. And actually, we turned it into a four-day trip. So, um, so the the first day, the boys were were at the hotel, and, and they were swimming, and we, you know, I was invited to be down at the, you know, it was the, it was the hotel pool. It's right. not like they were hiding out. Right. And we we got lots of great pictures of them, you know, monkeying around, monkeying around in the pool, and then um, and then Mike and Peter uh, had agreed to do a radio show, so we went in limousines to this radio station, and Mike was in one limousine and I was in Peter's limousine, and they went to the radio station and. We we went inside and I took pictures of them doing the show. They played. They they were disc jockeys for the day, so they played mm-hmm. Sergeant Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, um, and some other songs. And you know, and they were cutting up. You know, and Mike doing his, you know, Texas accent and talking about prairie chickens and. You know, he was being his his comical self, so yeah. he he was funny on the radio. And then, but when they went to come out, because this radio station was in sort of like an outdoor mall, it was in a, a very large strip center where there are all these stores, they had the place totally surrounded. And the guys couldn't get out. So we didn't know what we were going to do. So they got me out. One of the one of the drivers and some security guards, kind of. We worked our way through the crowd and got me back into one of the cars, and then they were trying to figure out what they could do because, okay, remember, no cell phones, so mm-hmm. they were communicating with walkie-talkies. Finally, they heard from inside the building. They said the monkeys are gonna climb out on the roof and they're gonna climb down on the. <laughs> the other side of the shopping center because all the girls were on one side so i was in the limo and so when when my driver got the cue you know he went tearing around to the other side and we can see them coming down off the roof down the ladder and still they had to scramble to the car because some of the some of the fans had run around and they still had to make it through the gauntlet and they got in the car, but then they surrounded the car. They were kind of piling on the car, and and it was really frightening because you mm-hmm. could you could like hear the roof kind of going up and down. And Peter, you know, he could tell I was frightened, and he just put his arm around me and he said, "It's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. You know, this is no big deal." And he was very sweet. Great. So that was the craziest fan incident that I ran into and you know it was it was still it it was scary but it was exciting to be a part mm-hmm. of that you know and to actually have that experience craziest behavior on their part I can't think of any crazy antics I can tell you one of my favorite touching stories go for it would that be all right mm-hmm. totally okay that's on that same tour so we get down to Houston you know, I didn't. I didn't fly with them. I had my own ticket, so I got in. We had we had done something after the show. I can't remember what it was. Whether we went to a club or whatever, I'll have to read my book. <laughs> but um, it. Uh, so I flew down there. I got in at like one in the morning, 
And I, had, I, of course, there weren't jetways yet, so we climbed down the, the, the stairs of the plane, you know, the, the rolling stairs that they drove up to the plane. Again, many, many of your listeners will not even know what I'm talking about. Um, just think back to the pictures of the monkeys yep. or the beetles getting off a plane. You'll, then you'll, it'll come to your mind's eye. He took me to my hotel, the, a cab driver, and had the windows rolled down, no air conditioning. And, I mean, I was soaking wet when I got to the hotel. I couldn't believe it. I had never been in South Texas humidity that's like 100%. 100%. So the next, um, the next day, was the, the concert was going to be that night. So Mike was having dinner with his relatives. I don't can't remember if Phyllis was along or not. But he, he was not going to dinner with the rest of us. But Peter and Davey went to dinner at this British pub called the Red Lion. And they invited me to join them. And so I was sitting across the table from Davy. And unbeknownst to me, Davy, and I don't, I, I should have asked him this question, but, but prior to this, Davy had befriended Jan Berry. Now, Jan Berry was this half of the singing duo, Dan, uh, Jan and Dean. Yes. They, they were the first record album I ever bought was a Jan and Dean album. I washed all the windows in my mom's house for 50 cents an hour, <laughs> cleaned her garage for 25 cents an hour until I had enough money to buy the Jan and Dean album. And then later she wrote me a fake letter. <laughs> and you paid her to do it. So you say. Okay. <laughs> so um, I go to dinner that night and, and Davey had befriended Jan he was in a terrible automobile accident yeah. in 1966 yes. on, on, on apparently dead man's curve and he was he was severely injured he was paralyzed on one side he, he lost a lot of cognitive memory and speech and he was in rehab, and of course, the word from his PR people was, "Oh, he's doing fine. He's he's just doing great." Right. But it, you know that wasn't the real story. And so Davy had become acquainted with him, and he thought he felt like he could help Jan if he could if Jan could spend time with the band. So he invited him to a couple recording sessions. They would he would play music in front of Jan at his house. Um, and so he had invited him to the tour so he could see them on stage in concert. He thought that would also be beneficial. And he was, and Jan was invited to dinner. So here he was, here I'm sitting across from, from Jan Berry, and I'm just going, man, this is far out, you know. And what, what I learned at that dinner was Jan still had a lot of rehabilitation left to go. So he came in on crutches, he sat down, he sat next to Davy, and but we did we did some talking across the table, but he talked like um, a kindergartner might talk. He had very limited, you know, vocabulary, and at one point he asked for some crayons, and so they got him crayons, and he was drawing on paper while we were waiting for our dinner, and, you know, he looked up at me and he said, he said, I can do my ABCs. And it was like, that is so awesome. You know, I don't think mm -hmm. I used to often. I probably said, that's really groovy. Yeah. Uh, but I just, I thought, I mean, my heart was just bursting. I just couldn't believe that Davy would take 
this time out of his life at, at such a full time of his life, but he still had time to, to befriend Jan, to do what he thought in his mind would help him move forward in his rehab. And then, and, and Jan was just, he was, he was, he was like a sweet child because he was enjoying everything around him. He wasn't overwhelmed by it, but at the same time, he was really up to his capacity, just sharing that, that he knew his ABCs and it, it, it was just, it was such a remarkable thing to do. And I, I, I've never forgotten that moment of, of just how incredibly compassionate Davey was. And it, it was a beautiful night. Wow. That's a story. I mean. I know. I know. Yeah. Very, very touching and, and 100% real and 100% Davey. Yeah. Here's a question I have. Mm-hmm. Was there a difference between the first season with the monkeys and the second season with the monkeys? Because as a viewer, it seems like they're much more self-aware. I mean, they always broke the fourth wall, but mm-hmm. they were clearly making fun of their own product at some point. And it even got a bit cynical, or, or let's say more sardonic and more cynical mm-hmm. in, the, in the second uh, season. Did you pick up on any of that behind the cameras when you were working with them or seeing them or... You know, I can't say that I did. Um, because I was only seeing bits and pieces, right. and then and then I would see the shows when they aired, you know, with everybody else, the, the very first viewing. And I have not looked back at those shows. Maybe I watched a couple. Now, I don't have the new Blu-ray set. I, I need to take care of that because yes, I you do. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I know I can picture where I was. Mm-hmm. It's certain, you know, whether it's the boxing ring scene or, oh, wow. you know, I mean, obviously yeah. I, I, was, I wasn't around for every scene. But well, and the stuff you were talking about on the last train to Clarksville, they've got some video footage of that, that train day. ride. Oh, well, I want to see if I'm in it. <laughs> that <laughs> would be go. that would be cool. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do need to do that, uh, definitely. Yeah. Being on set, you know, I, I always was out there with such purpose that I, I don't think I really was analyzing in any way how the TV shows were coming out. I don't think I missed any of them because I enjoyed them as much as, as the fans did. Right. And um, so I, I think that's something that might be, be more evident looking back as opposed to being aware of it at the time while we are looking back at history you were living it you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah so it's one indeed, thing to indeed i was yeah it's, it's 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 one thing to sit and watch a clock go tick 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 <laughs> it's another thing to look at the clock and go my god five hours just went by <laughs> <laughs> or in our case too yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely um <laughs> Boy, that's a hint she wants to dump us, Sarah. Oh, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> no I- Hubert Dodson writes, The monkeys definitely had an eventful career path, going from hot new stars to the biggest acts of 1967 to has-beens all in about the span of about four years. How did Tiger Beat's coverage on them change as their fame grew and then faded? And how did your working relationship with them change over that time? How many times would you post or, or, or print one of those monkey spectaculars was that bi-monthly i think at one point no it was it was monthly and i'd have to 
walk out in the living room where I've got them bound. Um, it, it was it was monthly. I think there were eleven issues, maybe sixteen. I I can't you know I, I can't think somebody recall. somebody who has them all said sixteen. I think Ed Riley yeah, said. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. It was a monthly publication, so that that was a lot of work to turn that out. We we did as much as we could during the height of their career, and that meant spending a lot of time with them. By the time they were doing Head, they were basically starting to d- dissolve as a group. And I know I've been asked this other question, too. It's like, did you see them coming apart? And I personally didn't. It would be like, oh, Peter's left the group. And then I'd call Peter and I'd talk to him about it, or Mickey, and, and things like that. I know in, in 68, I quote Mickey as saying he wasn't particularly distressed about the monkeys breaking up, and that's while they were making head. And then after that, we covered Davy probably more than the others because Davy stayed more visible. And, you know, we got to that point where he wanted to be called David. So we, you'll see in those issues, it, it was David. I left Tiger Beat in 1972. So after that time, I don't know how they were covered. I can remember going to Peter's house for an interview when he had formed a new group, and I wrote, a, I wrote about that. Mm-hmm. It, what happened, more than anything, is that, that right after the monkeys, then came the Bobby Sherman phenomenon, and here come the brides, and that mm-hmm. pretty much took over my days. Uh, you know, I wasn't out right. on, on their set as often because it was one superstar, not four. And so I didn't have to spend as much time. But, you know, Bobby was such an awesome, nice guy that I loved going and doing anything we had mm-hmm. to do with him. But he became the big center of attraction. It was also about that time, probably, I would say maybe 1969, that, that Chuck Lawfer then decided that he wanted to kind of create some of his own stars. Mm. And that's about the time we started to have to write about the DeFranco family and, you know, who were trapeze artists in, in Vegas. They were a trapeze family. And then, um, you know, he thought they would be the next Cow Sills. And, you know, nothing really came of that. Yeah. But it's like we, we were stretched in different directions. Right. And, and then when the Partridge family hit, then... Of course. To Tiger Beat, that was uh, the the next generation of the monkeys. They, you know, they had there were several stars. It was a hit TV show, and and then we were off and running with the Partridge Family magazine, and all those things. And I think the the biggest difference between the early years and later on, is that during the early years, everyone I talked to, I I was a similar age to them. Mm-hmm. And by, by the time David Cassidy came along, you know, I, I guess I was, I'm three years, three or five years older than him, what, whatever mm-hmm. the age difference is. But it, I was no longer like, oh, you know, this guy's my yeah. age and isn't he cute? And man, I sure wish he'd asked me out, you know? <laughs> and I mean, I kept that inside, of course. But, um, but by the time David Cassidy came along, it was like, you know, why won't you cooperate with me, punk? You know, it's like, yeah, you know, I, I, I was looking at it strictly as as part of my job and 
part of getting the story. And it, it, it just wasn't the same kind of connection at all. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't ever say I was friends with the monkeys, but they were always close with me on a very professional level. Right. No, and, that makes total know, sense. Yeah, so so it was awesome working with them, and then and and then as they kind of dropped out of the of the spotlight, I don't really know how uh, Tiger Beat covered them in the years that would follow when they would do those tours in the in the eighties and the nineties, and I have no idea. You mentioned that you left Tiger Beat in seventy two. Uh, what did you do? after that and and why didn't you stay in journalism i know you're probably saving some of that for the book but whatever you'd like to share about kind of your life since those days yeah i moved away from hollywood uh, i moved to northern california for a couple of years and in in my mind i thought well i won't have any problem at all getting a job in journalism you know i i, I thought gee i've i've been doing this for six years i'm i'm the the editor of a national magazine that sells, you know, half a million coffee, copies a month. You know, I was I was pretty proud of my accomplishment, and so I had always been a fan of Sunset Magazine, which is a, you know, it's it's like a home and garden magazine and how right. to, to magazine. I had read that and enjoyed it, and so I, I was living near Palo Alto, and their offices were in Menlo Park. So when I moved up there, I thought. I called up and I got an interview with the with the editor and I went in and I said I'd really like to come to work for you you know I love everything in here I I make your recipes I I do your home improvement projects I've I've read the magazine for years and he just looked at me and he said well you know you have a very you know accomplished resume he asked me about how much they paid me and I told him and he goes well actually we can get we can get a Stanford graduate for about a fourth of your salary. And he said, so there's no way we could, you know, pay you what you were making. And I said, well, I don't, I don't care about that. I, I just like to be a part of Sunset. I think it's awesome. And he said, oh, no. He said, you know, we, we, won't, we can't even hire you as a typist. So it was like he, he w- wouldn't even give me a shot. So... I just learned other other things to do. I, I yeah. went to work. I, I've had all kinds of different jobs. In the late 70s, I learned to be an orthodontic assistant placing braces because mm-hmm. my brother was an oral surgeon and he right. had a friend who needed somebody to come to work for him. So I went, oh, I'll do it. And not realizing until the night before that I'd be putting my hands in people's mouths. <laughs> uh, you know, that was a kind of a rude awakening. After I, I kind of achieved that goal of doing everything exactly the way the doctor wanted me to do things, then, then the office manager left and he, he felt most comfortable moving me into that role. So that fit more with my background, you know, the office skills, working with people, getting them scheduled and, and doing those things. And then in my early 30s i i did get married we uh, adopted our two sons at birth and we were so blessed and i was equally blessed that my husband was our provider during those years and and i got to be home until with the boys until they went off to college so those those were the best 18 years of my life to tell you the truth (laughs) 
when they went off to college, I had to go back to work. So I was back back to orthodontics, but you know, it was about five years ago. In that time when somebody said, you should write a book, I actually then had the impetus to, to tell my story because that was the first time I was aware that anybody else would care if I wrote a book or not. I mean, it be, it's because of the response I got to, to my blog and, and Facebook page that it's like, well, there are actually people that might want to hear the behind-the-scenes story that I've been hanging on to all this time. And, um, you know, my only fear was that I wouldn't be able to remember things because my only memory source is my issue of, of Tiger Beat. I, I, I never, you know, I didn't keep a journal. If only, you know, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. easy to say, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, but I did not keep a personal journal during those years. Luckily, my mom saved a lot of letters that I used to send her from from my travels with Tiger Beat. So that that helped a lot with a puzzle that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that that I hadn't, in fact, exaggerated parts of my memory, (laughs) um, which would be easy to do. Mm-hmm. Or, or that you know that these things actually happened, and so uh, so I have all those handwritten letters you know sent from England and Paris and you know the southern states when I toured with the Raiders and Hawaii and and mm-hmm. uh, and so those helped tremendously. So Anne, mm-hmm. it's it's time for another song. Would you please favor us with another monkeys track to play? Oh well, I'm a believer was. It's always been my number one. All and right. I clapped on that. So oh, okay. oh my gosh, that's right. Well, okay, we're not done yet. Got one more for you, but before I sing this, just want to tell all you folks out there and you tell your little kids, I sang this song long before Shrek. saw her face Unbeliever Not her trace Daddy, mama I'm in love I'm a believer I'm gonna leave her If I try Well, I was more or less A given thing Seems the more I gain I got all oh, you said trying all you get is pain when you needed sunshine I got a rain then I saw her face and I'm believing not a chase This point and I haunted all my dreams 
That was the Monkeys Live with I'm a Believer. And Anne, you teased us before we started playing that. You have a special story to tell. You were one of the hand claps on that famous recording. I was. And that was that was just an unusual twist of fate. I was down at the, the recording studios. Um, and my friend Terry Pierce was along with me. And we were we were just kind of hanging out because the Stones were recording. I think, mm-hmm. you know, don't you don't quote me on that. But, <laughs> but we were we were hanging out at the studio, and all of a sudden I came out of one door, and Chip Douglas, who produced some of the Monkey songs, came out of another door, and he said, "Oh, Ann Moses, can you help me out here?" And he, they had all, uh, the monkeys had already recorded that all this, the, the voice tracks and all the music tracks had been laid down and he was just putting down background tracks. And he, and I said, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, I just need you to clap on this song. And I thought, well, I know how to clap. No big deal. And, uh, so we go in and they, and he had gathered together about Three of us, I think, um, my friend Terry and and uh, and another person, and and but then he had to teach us how to clap because <laughs> it was not, you know, it was it was the beat he wanted us to produce, not not just clap clap clap. Mm-hmm. It and if you listen, I don't, you know, some people know how to manipulate uh, the sounds through their through their sound systems, mm-hmm. but if you can can isolate the you know the background track a little bit you what you'll hear is clap 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 and it's like it was foreign to me so we all practiced it a few times you 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 had to get the exact rhythm exactly and um and and i've got pretty good rhythm but still this was brand new after you know after we practiced a few times then we did probably two takes and he said that's it. And to this day, you know, if I'm going through the grocery store, if I'm driving in the car, where whenever that song comes in, 
I, I can hear myself in the background. It is just, it is so cool. Um, and it just a fun moment. Uh, you know, I wish they gave clap, clappers royalties, but <laughs> be that as it may, it is, it is still, it's still just a fun little tingle I get when I hear that song come on. That is so fantastic. Yeah, it was, it was a fun time and, um, you know, to get to see the, you know, some of those behind the scenes moments on what goes into a, a total recording, uh, people just don't have any idea, or I certainly didn't. Absolutely. So you can look for Anne at a Whole Foods dancing in the aisle, clapping <laughs> along with I'm a Believer. You got it. You got it. I got the moves. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> what advice would you give to somebody who is is waiting on the edge of something, like whether they want to try to do something or not? What advice would you give them, seriously? For I would say just... Just go with your gut. I never, in in my younger years, you know, grade school, junior high, high school, I was not a timid person, but I also wasn't a big school leader. And uh, I tended to be a leader in roles where I felt comfortable. Let's uh -huh. put it that way. Like I was comfortable with being the yearbook editor. And I never had a specific dream I think it was that I acted on impulse a lot of my life. Like when, when I was standing watching the Dave Clark Five, and that was a totally accidental thing. It, it wasn't something I went and bought tickets for. It was because I was a volunteer usher at Melody Land Theater across from Disneyland, where I also worked. And I had just gone in there like any other night, like when Annie Get Your Gun was showing or whatever, and I was there in my black skirt and my white blouse. And I was ready to seat people. It was standing room only, so we were always allowed to stand at the back of the theater and watch the show. And I just watched them on stage, and I just said, I have to meet these guys. So I believe I was always blessed with a certain degree of tenacity. Mm -hmm. So I, I always would just use that tenacity to just say, well, I want to meet those guys. So I made it happen. And I would say other things in my life followed suit. And, and, and it's like, what have you got to lose? You, the worst thing somebody can say to you is no. And then you always have the opportunity to keep them talking about them, get them to change their mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when I first sought out Rick Pacone, who was their, their tour manager, and I said, I'd like to interview the guys. He said, no, there's no way. They're, they're doing two shows tonight. They've got to eat between shows. Can't do it. No, no, no. You know, I kept after it. And, and, and that was true of many things in my life. And so it's like if you, if you don't have a tenacious bone in your body, look for one. <laughs> yep. That was kind of my internal thing as I was growing up. Yes, I can. And, and, you know, until I was stopped dead in my tracks, I had the attitude of I can do it. And, and, and anybody can do what they're passionate about. All you've got to do is, is take the first step. Agreed 100%. And I think a lot of people need to hear that because the thing that kind of keeps a lot of people down is in the end themselves. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Yep. Well, thank you, Anne, for that. I can't wait to read your book. I hope you come back on when it comes out. And I've just been sitting here thinking, I didn't know your name when I was a kid, you know, because this was before the internet for me, yep. too, in the 80s. Yep. But I've just been sitting here through this whole conversation going, you're the person that when I was 10 years old, I thought I wanted to be when I grew up. Because oh, Sarah. It just these stories and just getting to hear about you, you know, getting to live a little bit of the story with them. I, I, my, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I know, you know, 10 year old me has really enjoyed this conversation. And I, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing so much with us today. Well, I want to thank you as well. You, you don't know how neat it is to, to be able to share my stories. I mean, up until this point, who would have a clue that you could talk about events of your life from 50 years ago and have anybody give a hoot? So it, it, it's very rewarding and it, it's just as exciting for me because it takes my mind back to those days and yeah. I, I get to live them all over again. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you, I'll never look at my dental assistant the same way again. Well. <laughs> Well, I only did that for a few months. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm sure it's not going to sound as cool as Sarah's, but I was uh, always looking at that swinging 60s chick <laughs> that had the coolest fashion hanging out with the monkeys, and I always thought that I'd date that girl someday. But our roads took uh, another turn, but I'm glad to finally get to speak to you. So, <laughs> me, me too, Ken. Me you know, too. It, it all works out, right? We're all where yeah, we're, we're supposed to ever. be. It does it ever. There you go. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know that mine wasn't as schmaltzy and uh, heartfelt as hers. but I, I really, the emo. What can I say? But That's I right, Sarah. I really thought you were cute as heck and had the uh, coolest hair and wore the, the modest styles. It was all so cool. So. Well, thank you, Ken. Yeah, it was, you were a groovy chick, man. Oh. And at which point I'm going to play Mike Nesmith saying, Man, what a groovy looking chick with a body like that. I've never yeah, seen no sunglasses. You know. <laughs> 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 well, you didn't have the sideburns, though. So, uh, no. No, 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 no. But uh, I want to thank you for coming on uh, to Zilch. A lot of people love to, to hear from you. And it was so cool for our listeners to, to know that you were reading their questions as they were putting them up. Oh, and it's and it's my thank you that that they read Tiger Beat and and you know wrote in with the great questions. It's that's that's the beauty of this whole thing, is that um, somebody cares to to hear those those stories of the of back in the day, and that's just that's a real treat for me. And uh, is there anything you'd like to say to our listeners that uh, sent in questions? Ah. Uh, just, uh, you know, thank you for your imaginative questions. Yeah. And what they might not realize is that they're curious about something. But until they ask that question, I'm not sure I've thought about that mm -hmm. until that very moment. So it, it's fun to reflect and go, hmm, well, you know, here's how I want to answer that question. Because maybe I haven't even thought about that before. And so they're, they're like digging down and getting info I wasn't aware was in there. <laughs> very so, cool. So, you know, well done well, to, and to, to bring that out. <laughs> very good. 
We want to thank you for being on Zilch and making everybody smile. Right, Sarah? Absolutely. This was a wonderful conversation. And Anne, when do you think your book's going to be coming out? 2017, right? 2017. Hopefully this spring. Well, we will let our listeners know about it. We'll make an ad and we'll make sure that they know about it. And we'll have you back. And have them visit my Facebook page. It's Facebook forward slash Ann Moses. And they'll be the first to know. Excellent. Awesome. Is there any place else that they should find you on the social well, media? Well, they can read my my stories about the Beatles and and certainly the Monkees and many other people I talk to on my blog, which is annmoses.com. And that's Ann with, without an E. A-N-N-M-O-S-E-S.com. Correct. Like a professional announcer. You know, I have a Facebook <laughs> that's radio. That's right. You know I have a face for radio, and this is one of those times it comes in handy. So, That's right. And we're going to have to have you back because we had some questions about you running into the monkeys again later, like on tour. We had an amazing reunion three years ago. I spent uh, almost an hour with Peter catching up, and it was just like, it was just like being out on the set with him. And then I had a, a nice hello with Mickey after the show. And the biggest shock for me was um, I was not aware that Coco had been singing backup mm. with them for years. And I had a wonderful reunion mm-hmm. with Coco. And I think I, I almost gave her a heart attack because she, she was just so surprised to see me. And they are coming to uh, um, Mesa Arts Center. It's about five miles from my house. And I have my tickets for their September 15th show, and I can't wait. So Wonderful. It, so it's not just a popular theme song. The monkeys may actually be coming to your town. Uh, they, they certainly are. Because you never know where they'll be found, but they are coming to your town. So that, <laughs> it, you know, it was prophesied back in the 60s, and in 2016, it's come to fruition. Hey, hey, Ken, you got it right. That's right, girl. All right, well, we love you, Ann Moses. I think that's safe to say that all Zilch staff loves you, so we we will let you go. Thank you for gracing us with your presence, and we will let everybody know when they can find that book in 2017. Okay, sounds wonderful. All right, God bless. Okay, bye-bye now. And that's our show. Zilch is an online, nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the Monkees or any of their members past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Burke. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around. (laughs) Don't now. Now really, everybody cool it because I won't be able to get through this. Action. Hey, wow, it's a groovy button. What does it say? Love is the ultimate trip. Oh, gee, that's a nice thought. Gee, that's a neat button. What does it say? <laughs> Let's go again. I'll do it another time because she's got dinner plans. I don't know. I got to go take a shower. That's right. Okay. <laughs> don't say such things, Ann. You're, you're going to give me thoughts. Don't do that, Ann. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Yeah, good thing my husband didn't hear that. Uh, no, he would. Just, you know, you know what he'd say. The same thing I said about Gene Simmons. That guy's got good taste. <laughs> You're right.